0: If you imagine that distribution of skills, the normal, the bell curve distribution of skills, and those of us who aren't developers, who aren't coders, but who maybe know our way around Python a little bit or so, we sit on the far left of that spectrum, right? And the, and the top engineers would sit on the far right. And suddenly you've got a, a co-pilot, GitHub co-pilot, or even something like ChatGPT or Claude or one of the other models, that now takes those of us on the far left of that spectrum and put our slap bang in the middle. So we average. Now, and, and that's one of the criticisms against AIs. AI people will say, well, it's average. You know, so that's, and, and you often see this in writing. Look at copywriting, it's garbage, it's average. But think of it this way. I was on the far left of that spectrum until November the, last year, and suddenly I'm in the middle. And because I'm in the middle, I have the opportunity to move towards the right. And so I've been able to code stuff over the last six months that I should not have been able to code because my level of coding is not at it's not there.
1: What's up guys welcome back to the third season of my product tested now in the past two seasons we've interviewed top founders and business owners season two we interviewed the money factories that support these businesses in the form of VCs and now we're hearing it from the experimentation experts the NBA all-stars. Of the experimentation world these guys are boasting deep experience in consumer psychology statistical analysis and strategy as always i'm your host cameron calder founder of hype digital your website experimentation partner using research and deep analysis to a b test on millions of users every month and in today's episode we'll be hearing from Johan hanf and tonder who's been leading the charge in ai in this industry and sharing practical know-how on implementing ai to better your ops and scale your website's revenue actually just checking now to remind myself and that ChatGPT only launched in november last year to say that it's seven months uh of running and the internet has has changed drastically um but i want to chat about um that you uh, one of your subjects that you're studying uh was in a field that would disappear in 10 years time and I think that ties quite nicely into the innovation piece and, and looking how industries can be transformed and all of that. What was, the, what was the field? I mean, I started out in media. And um, so I
0: straight out of university, I was in, in media, newspaper media, uh, for five years, I think, before, before the Internet really became a thing. But I'm, and so I'm old enough to remember, and this is where it does tie into AI, I'm old enough to remember a time when there wasn't internet, and that transition happened in slow motion around me. So, just as I left university, the internet started becoming, you know, uh, available to to people, and very few people had it in their in 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 the homes. Nobody had it in their office. If you wanted the internet to go and surf the web, you'd go to an internet cafe, and. Um, it, I remember the headlines. This thing is a fad. And we're talking about serious publications like The Guardian, Telegraph, Business Week, Time Magazine, I remember, had a had a piece about this. Nobody's going to buy on the internet. People buy from people. They don't buy on machines. This is not going to work. Give it five years. It'll be dead. And um, I... I didn't buy that. I could see what was happening around us. And I I, I thought, I didn't know what the opportunities were. No, nobody knew, just like now with AI. I didn't know where this thing was going to go, but I knew I wanted to be part of it in a big way. And so the earliest opportunity that I had was actually in this media company where I was working at the time, big multinational um, giant, and the new CEO came in, And he transformed it from a reasonably big newspaper and magazine company to an internet uh, company. So I was in the right place at the right time kind of thing. And um, it it was a very unpopular move. And so there are, if we bring it back to today, I I can see the the deja vu is just so loud in my ears, because we're seeing the same headlines. Mm. We're seeing people around us saying, "Well, you know, you, you you know, take note of it, but don't take it too seriously because you know it's not good enough. Look at look at the garbage it puts out. You know, it's it's never really going to um, be what what people say it will be. I think it's transformative. I think it's it's a platform shift, and I think that the world, like in 1994." is changing around us in slow motion. You're going to wake up one day. And this is what I've said to my team and anyone who has had the displeasure of having to spend time with me in the last while, that in five years from now, the worst for me that will happen is, well, actually it's the best, is you guys will all turn around, laugh at me and go, look at how wrong you were you got it all wrong. But there's a chance that my crazy thoughts are not that misguided. And I'll be in a good space. And where will you be? And that's, that's the internet all over again.
1: I mean, being seven months into what ChatGPT has done, which I mean, they obviously AI has always been around, but to this extent, they've They've almost led the drive of what like facebook did to the social media industry and like where we are now so what are people saying that they are trying to hide from
0: i mean it's always going to be there right people we're all we're all scared of change and we're all threatened by this so there's if you want to take it a step further there's this constant refrain about will it take jobs no it won't take jobs you know it's the the This is the the most common reaction I think I've seen to AI, certainly in my circle, is the threat that it will take my job or that it's here to to threaten me and my livelihood. And then you get, you know, people who take it a step further, it'll take over the world and let's not even go there, you know, it's not even worth debating that. But... We respond, I think, from that position of feeling threatened. And so that's not a healthy response. That's never going to be a healthy response. You shut yourself off to the world of opportunities that are around you. Somebody very close to me who's a a journalist, used to be a a newspaper reporter, um, now doing fiction writing and, and PR, but still very much in the game, was also naturally very resistant to it. And I spent about 15 minutes with that person on AI and it completely changed the way she looked at AI. It's, and that's what I tried is to get my team and you know people that I care about to do, is say to them, look, just embrace it, just, just play with it, just give it a chance. Suspend the view that you have about it and just play with it. Um, because once you do that, you'll start seeing for yourself what it can do what the limits are and you'll start perhaps taking an informed view to the reports that you're referring to and the comments that you're referring to but if you if you look at from the very early days and you're right i mean this has been around for 50 years it's nothing new but chat gpt really put it on the map in november (laughs) and it's interesting what happened there because gpt the underlying model had been around for a number of years and a fringe community you know was doing things with it and all they did was to put an interface a user interface on top of it that's it and suddenly you know the entire world was uh, was was using it and and now it's there now it's in the in the in the common gis- discourse but if you if you look at the people in November and December shortly after the launch and still today who are talking about it, who are taking it seriously. It's not crazies. It's not people on the fringe. It's serious names. It's you know, people who've achieved things. It's names that we should be looking up to. It's the front runners in industries. Um, the people who are feeling threatened and are saying all these negative things, what have they done? They've done nothing. They've achieved nothing uh, you, you know, it's compared to the names that, that, that have embraced this. And I think it's just that. It's we, we, our amygdala, our primitive brain, is seeing a lion chasing us. And we're responding from that primitive brain and we want to run away. And if we, if we just bring it back to the rational brain, and see that this is actually not a lion, but it's just maybe some wind blowing in the grass and we should go towards it, then, you know, I think I think it'll serve you better.
1: Yeah. I pictured that analogy ending on us being on top of the lion, riding it into the sunset. <laughs> I haven't quite thought it through, so fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about the practical uh, applications of this, and I, I think it's... It's epic hearing you speak about the the mindset needs to be uh, using this AI field as a playground and being open to the potential opportunities. And uh, I know from uh, to shed some light internally from our side. You know we have like the the classic Slack groups internally in our teams of just all chat GPT ideas or anything that we're seeing that is just around there. Um, I think it's a new uh, customer support. Obviously, they use Tesla as their example of <laughs> of a case study. Um, but yeah, it's just really nice to see that you know the openness to it brings these ideas and and how this can uh, be applied in different um, areas. And from our side, we've kind of uh, subconsciously split this up into uh, almost speeding up workload and administrative tasks that can be done faster um, that were these sort of mundane tasks that people were doing that were taking loads of hours um, and trying to to shorten that um, I wouldn't say it's waxed completely but it's the things that we are working on and then there's there's kind of the bigger picture um, more impactful stuff that can be done which you know I'm really excited about like the, the possibilities of uh, specifically on conversion optimization um, oh, I want to give some practical examples of um, just understanding from your side uh, some things that you've seen and, and potentially tested um, that, that maybe some people that are listening today uh, can potentially implement themselves without having you know, deep coding experience or, or anything like that.
0: Well, let's start there. The, the deep coding experience is perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of this because suddenly you're a coder, whether you know it or not. And look, it helps to know a little bit about coding, but if you imagine that distribution of skills, you know the the normal the bell curve distribution of skills, and you those those of us who aren 't developers who aren 't coders but who maybe know our way around Python a little bit or so, we sit on the far left of that spectrum right and the, and the top engineers would sit on the far right, and suddenly you 've got a co-pilot, GitHub co-pilot, or even something like ChatGPT or Claude or one of the other models, uh, or, or Replet, that now takes those of us on the far left of that spectrum and put our slap bang in the middle. So we average. Now, and, and that's one of the criticisms against AI, is people will say, well, it's average. You know, so that's, and, and you often see this in writing. Look at copywriting, it's garbage, it's average. But think of it this way. I was on the far left of that spectrum until November last year and suddenly I'm in the middle and because I'm in the middle I have the opportunity to move towards the right and so I've been able to code stuff over the last six months that I should not have been able to code because my level of coding is not at it's not there and again that's why I'm saying just play with it experiment with it you will Surprise yourself what you're able to do if you're willing to push the envelope a little bit. So if you're scared of something like Python, if you convince yourself that you've never been a coder, you can't do it, well, it's not gonna work. But if you open your mind to it, and if you just see what comes out, you might be surprised. Um, the, I'll, I'll make it practical. The, in CRO, I mean, it, copywriting, was probably one of the first, and it's the obvious use case. And Jasper has been around for a long time and there were many clones of, Jas- clones of Jasper. And what, what many people might not realize is that they were using just the, the GPT underlying models before ChatGPT was around. Um, and you know, so it's that same foundation model. But um, again, I see a lot of, if we just talk about copywriting, I see a lot of red flag and um, reaction from a, an emotional, primitive brain perspective where the common pushback is, it's, it's bad, it's, you know, it's mediocre, it's average, it is the, it's the average of what everyone has written. But let's not fool ourselves. Copywriting has not been that great. It's not like it's been this amazing place with... You know, and suddenly all of us are at least average with the help of AI, we shouldn't be shit anymore. We at least, average. But, but if you know something about copywriting, and if you have a brain, and you've got brain cells that can connect, then you take that AI, and suddenly you're able to move towards the right of the spectrum. And I've seen amazing copy written by AI. In the hands of a copywriter, a skilled copywriter, They do magic. It's overcoming, as you you say, moving faster, overcoming that white page syndrome. So we talked about copywriting. We talked a little bit about coding, but just to bring coding, um, make it more practical in terms of CRO. So the coding that gets done in CRO mostly is front-end A-B test coding. I would think that most... CRO strategists or analysts have enough skills and know enough about the basics of HTML and CSS, and maybe JavaScript is a little bit of a blind spot, but Mm -hmm. again, you'll surprise yourself, to be able to code certainly the simple tests with the help of something like uh, Copilot, GitHub Copilot. So what GitHub Copilot does is it's taken all the, the code in GitHub and the the um in the open repositories and um uh i forget the site but it's um stack overflow where you know questions related to coding are asked and they've ingested all of that and built a platform that allows you to have this coder sit next to you that helps you you know write your code and so you can go to ChatGPT, you could say, here's the, or, or many other tools, and you can say, here's the the change that I want to make on a page. You, help me do that. It will write you the code. It will probably be wrong. Yeah. And so what? You can then tell it, it doesn't work. This code doesn't work. Help me fix it. And it'll fix it. And so, copywriting, coding, and then one more, which is analysis. And I think that that's really where I've been experimenting with it the most and we've got to be honest this is experimentation so as with any experimentation most of them don't work out the way that you thought they would so I've learned over the last six seven months a lot of things that don't work (laughs) so I figured out what doesn't work Um, there's been more of that much more of that than there's been things where you know you, you've, you found a way to to do it, and it it, it just takes over that piece of of analysis. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that people make, and I think it's changing now, but what I've seen up until recently is that they they take, let's say, customer reviews or any qualitative data, they stick that into ChatGPT, they tell ChatGPT to to do a, an analysis, and it comes back with a plausible-looking you know, report. So it gives you the themes, it gives you perhaps the, the ranking of the themes. But they don't try to replicate it. And that's, which, that's actually what you should do. And, and if you do that experiment, if you, if you, if you ask ChatGPT with the same data set to do it two, three, four, five times, you'll see that every time it gives you a slightly different result. And so it's making stuff up. So mm. that's not the way to do it. You, but there is a way to do it with plugins, with ChatGPT plugins, um, or with something like Claude, you know, there, there are ways around it, and it will, it, you, can do, you can do the level of analysis so accurately, no human is able to, to do it in that way because our brains are not, we're not able physiologically to, to keep all this amount of information in our brains to to deal with it at one time and whereas a machine is is able to do that, and so I'd say practically you know those three are the big opportunities that I see, and there's a lot more
1: so what would be that that list of the uh, the mistakes or the potential pitfalls of, of of using it and you know obviously is it is it more the methodology or or do you see some areas that you're a bit worried about? the length to which you can push this? I think it's expectations,
0: uh, partly. So it's thinking, in not all cases, does it speed up um, a process? So I just did one yesterday, actually, that uh, ran late into the night. And on reflection, it probably took me longer than it would have taken without AI, but it was a lot more accurate. The quality of the work is, Superior to what I would have done without AI. And I'd rather have that in this instance. It's not applicable in every case. And sometimes, you know, that there's that trade off that you've got to balance. But in this case, the quality was absolutely um, necessary. And so that's the one thing is about expectation, about doing things faster. You know, you, you could ask yourself. The big one, I think, is not understanding hallucination and accuracy and how to work around that. So the, the, the example I mentioned just a moment ago, where you you give some data to, to chat GPT to analyze, and you trust it, you take it on face value, but it's probably hallucinated some of that. You know, so there may be, mostly it would be accurate, but to what extent is it accurate? And then you gotta ask yourself, well, how, how accurate does it have to be? Because if you're early, in the, uh, you know, you've just started working on a, on an account perhaps, and you're just trying to get a, a sense of the lay of the land, then reasonable accuracy is, you know, might be good enough. But when you, you've got to know when you need more accuracy. So I think that's probably the starting point. And that's the, the one thing where I saw a lot, see a lot of people being tripped up is that understanding what level of accuracy you need. And if you're happy with not too accurate chat gpt is a good route if you want more uh if you want to dial up the accuracy then you've got to use chat gpt with plugins or a code interpreter or one of the other platforms claude is is actually one of my favorites um at the moment so what you can do with claude and i'm not sure how open access it is you may have to go onto a wait list i'm I'm not sure about this but claude 2.0 is just launched and it's it's changed my world so what I do with Claude is upload PDFs or CSV or documents and then instruct it to use just those documents. And the the way you can prompt Claude, and I think this is another shortcoming in many of the processes that I see, is that, that the prompting isn't very good. And it's garbage in, garbage out. So you've gotta understand the prompting. And if you're gonna use Claude, Claude is Fantastic, it is, it's GPT on steroids as long as you prompt it properly. And so here's a good example of what I've done with with Claude. Is, so so I might have, yesterday it was 32 PDF reports. And there's a lot in these PDF reports. And I, I did an experiment, so I asked, a team of three people, very sharp people, sharp brains, to look at these reports, 32 PDFs, and write me a summary. And there was a very specific question that I gave them about what themes I wanted them to look out for. And they came back, it took them about a month to process all of that, and they came back with a, with a report. And I did that in Claude, um, last night in the first phase of it. So to be to, 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 to compare it ex- exactly with the, with the instructions I gave the team, that would have been about an hour. And most of it was uploading the reports and then constructing the prompt. And it was far more accurate, far more detailed. It could back it up so I could challenge it. I would challenge it and I would say, I wonder about your point number four and he would come back with quotes from the report to say, here's how I back it up. Yeah. I had the same discussion with the team. They couldn't. And I wouldn't be able to do it because, again, our brains are not able to um, take in and make sense of all this data at once. One last thing I'll say. My, the, my approach to highlighting books. I, I, I'm an avid reader. I read a lot. Uh, I read three, four, five books a week. And my approach to highlighting, and it's all electronic books, in Kindle or or other electronic books, has changed dramatically for the sake of AI. So previously, I used to be very very economical with my highlights, because I'm highlighting for my future self. And my future self is just the human brain who can't take in too much, so I want to make it as easy as possible for my future self to make sense of it. So the the fewer highlights there are, the better. But now I'm highlighting for my AI. So as I read the book, the question I ask myself is, what do I want my AI to know when I ask it questions about this? And now you've got, so so I've got this, um, call it a knowledge management system that, that I've built. And again, that's one of the things that I would not have been able to build without AI. I do not have the level of coding knowledge to build something like that. I built it in a week. Using AI, and um, I couldn't believe that it worked. And and there was a lot of, you know, going back to AI to say, look, it's not working. Here's the error message. Oh, apologies for that. Try this. So there was a lot of that. But eventually, it, it got it right. It sorted it out. And what I've got now is this database of book highlights going back. Many many years, um, fifteen years. Web articles that I've saved over that time, personal notes, meeting notes, podcast transcripts. um, There's a lot in there, and I'm able to chat to my notes. I'm able to chat to my book highlights. I'm able to ask it questions, and it's 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 increased the ROI. On that investment the investment of spending time making notes spending time reading books doing highlights listening to podcasts and managing all of that it's increased the roi on that exponentially
1: i'm just processing all of this just as a normal human brain that's right this is no that's incredible and i i think there's yeah there's uh Uh, you know a lot of similarities to what we're doing obviously at the more primal level in in most cases um especially testing out code interpreter for uh test implementation um actual like code scripts and i think the nice thing there is actually getting the error messages and like i think it's really good at responding to that and providing the options but as you say there's obviously limitations to your own knowledge and like that middle ground graph is so accurate because when you hit a brick wall on your error messages and there's you don't know the answers yourself or the prompts to ask for specific errors as to where they're coming from then you reach a, a standstill um i think, I think you...
0: that's a really i think that's a really good point sorry to interrupt you there cam but i think that i've said earlier that you know, I think it's good advice to just play with it. Just um, just embrace it. But the second thing is figure out prompting. I think that's really important because you'll you'll be frustrated with the output you get if your input isn't good enough. And so that's something to really, uh, I think, spend time investing in.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's... Uh, I think someone wrote an article the other day about uh, the... It was something so simple as the the small companies get the same access as the big companies or an individual gets the same access as a big team. And I think, you know, yeah. ChatGPT and, and the likes have done what, for example, low-code uh, has done for uh, platforms and apps and, yeah. and software production. And I think that's the exciting part. And, you know... Um, not just access from plugins but also like integrations like having zapier or any Mm -hmm. of these these software now plugging in the opportunity just like completely scales up compared to where we were in the past of relying on developers for implementation on things that take forever or or just impossible
0: yeah i I think the the foundation models like the gpt that's not really the magic the magic is what you do with it you know so all the model does all that GPT and the interface, the, the standard basic interface chat GPT does, is it's, it's, it's an algorithm that allows you to speak to the computer in English and it speaks back to you in language that you understand. That's all it does. You, you can't expect anything more from it. And that's why the criticism that it's average and that it can't do math and all of that is not valid, because that's not what it's intended to do. And I think that's the other thing that people misunderstand is they're expecting too much from this model. All it does is it allows you to speak to the computer. Now you've got to figure out how to use that foundation model w- combined with other models and plugins and other software and your own layer of knowledge to do the stuff that you want to do. And that's really where you want to be. Then the magic happens.
1: Yeah. And, you uh, where do you see... I mean, we're seven months into this revolution, uh, purely because of the uh, sort of steadfastness of uh, ChatGBT. Do you see, you know, in six months' time, I mean, that's kind of the, the future for us now as to how, how quickly this thing moves um, and what's happened in the past. Are there things that you foresee coming in to have a big impact on CRO specifically?
0: I, th- I think nobody knows. Um, I'm not even going to attempt to predict the future because we, we can't. Not even Sam Altman knows where this is going. Nobody does. And the what I've discovered is that what I what I say to my team is three things. Firstly, figure out how you can use this to improve your workflows. You know, in your personal life, in your work, it doesn't matter. But you know, doing things better, faster higher quality, whatever. Secondly, try and figure out how to use it to do things that you weren't able to do six months ago, like, for example, the coding examples. And then the third thing is, whilst playing with it and whilst running experiments, be open to opportunities that you didn't even know were possible before. So what could you do now? What can you potentially do now if you have the right brains in the room and the right tools? Imagine it's true. What could you do? And, and a good way to do this, and I've, you know, I've tried to ask this question a lot, is how should this work? So if you think, for example, let's, let's take a familiar example. Um, before Netflix or streaming services were around. So you would, you would watch television and you would watch whatever was on at that given time, because that's, it was live broadcast, that if you tune in at 8 p.m., you'd see the show, but if you didn't, you'd miss it. Um, okay, and maybe initially you had, a, you had a, a recorder, eventually you had a digital recorder, but how should that work? The way it should work is that you decide what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, and you're willing to pay a bit of a fee for it. That's how the world should work. Now, 20 years ago, you asked that question. We go, well, we can't make that happen. Elon Musk is saying, we want to put people on Mars. People go, well, how are you going to do that? He says, I don't know. But we'll... And so I think that should be our question with, with AI and with these emergent technologies, is as you're trying to do stuff in your daily life, the question you should ask yourself is, how should this actually work? What is the, what's the frustration I have at the moment? What's the pain? What's the what would be a better way of doing this how should it work and even if even though you can't make it happen that way you probably could find a way with ai and the right tools and the right people to make that happen and so that's that's a way to break through that
1: yeah that's uh so peter thiel's uh, zero to one on um you know what great company does not exist right now yeah Um, Yeah. and i think uh, you know asking that question as to know what implementation does not exist right now like great implementation or great use case does not exist right now and i yeah i respect you majorly for you know pushing that in the team as well that because everyone needs the everyone has their own insight perspective and their own situation of the workload that they're dealing with and everyone has their own ideas of potential ways of of utilizing this you know epic industry and i think Having that playground approach is such a good theme to carry out that, you know, people, it removes the, the fear, um, it enhances the excitement to use it and, and just the time spent on that. And I think that's when the big ideas come is, you know, when someone's constantly testing, constantly thinking of these ideas and, and not just doing these once-off big experiments and seeing, and then if it fails, then you're done, because it's going to fail. Of them,
0: most of them will fail
1: yeah um i want to just jump out for a second i know we're running out of time here and but um uh obviously uh very jealous that you're working on uh woolworth's top brand that uh, i think if any south african knows i was thinking about a personalization idea for you guys using my ip address and just discounting all products by 20 percent um but uh i want to just chat about (laughs) <laughs> I want to chat about um just experimentation of it uh purely for entertainment purposes but I want to talk about um some some big experimentation fails you've seen um uh personally or just in the industry that that have been also surprising um and with the theme of uh, surprising have you seen some some big wins in in experimentation that you know, the, as much as we try to hide opinions and bias, uh, that we're surprised that there was a big impact when that you've seen.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, that's really, I think, the most interesting, uh, and, and for me, that that's what keeps me engaged with this industry and this job is the surprises. I live for the surprises both ways, but especially negative surprises, like something that you're so sure um, is going to, yeah, maybe not blow the lights out, but uh, have a certain effect, and it just, um, it, it just does the opposite. And that's exciting for many reasons. One, because it just proves, again, it reminds ourselves how bad we are at this. How we, and, and that's why my earlier response to your question, I won't even attempt to predict the future, because I know I can't. I see it every day, how wrong I am about things. So it's, it's very humbling, but it's, it's, it's also very refreshing. But then it means, if you've got a negative result, that you found a lever, and you've pulled it in the wrong direction. And that's what's so exciting about it, is now, how do you take this lever and figure out the direction in which to pull it, so you get a different result? I'm far less excited, I must be honest, about positive results. Okay, there's a nice win. So, I don't trust big results. I, For, for I think, good reason. Um, there's usually, if there's a blow-the-lights-out result, it's, there's usually something wrong. There's Twyman's Law that says, base, basically in English, if it looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Um, so then you've got, to, you've got to treat big results in that way. But I've seen legit, impressive uh, increases in metrics that people care about from very simple changes. And... Uh, you asked me a question about what examples of things that I've seen that have that have, that have not worked out. Most things haven't worked out. And the, the one thing I learned very early on in this industry is to not be emotionally invested in your test. Because that's a very hard thing, right? The, the moment that you want something to perform in a certain way and it doesn't, well, it introduces all sorts of biases. So maybe you're going to f- find some data that makes it work. Or you know, just it feels, it feels bad. It's deflating, Um, and so just put it out there. And what I try to do and encourage people to do is actually to try and prove yourself wrong, because mostly you are going to be wrong. Um, But I've I've spent days on wireframes using fancy data analysis, constructing R code to do this analysis. interviewing customers, and doing everything right, following the process, then taking my wireframe that I spent two days on, testing it on users before I make it live in an A-B test, and it goes south in a big way. Uh, You know, so there's there's maybe two weeks' work that has gone in there, and I've worked late nights on it, I've worked weekends on it, Um, and as I say, it's not this, it's, you know, based on process, based on data. so, and there's been a lot of that. There's been, there's been a lot more of that than there's been, um, you know, change a word and, um, and it gives you a right result. But it's – that's I, honestly, f- for me, I've come to the point where that's more exciting than wins because of what it allows you to do. Some of the biggest wins – here's the last thing I'll say and then I'll shut up. Some of the biggest wins and most impressive wins that I've seen – have been born out of negative tests. So there was, and, and, and this is why it's interesting. There's no way that you could have stumbled upon that insight other than running a negative test. You couldn't get it from customer interviews, you couldn't get it from GA, you couldn't get it from Hotjar, you couldn't get it from any data source. The only way you could have stumbled upon that insight is by running a test and refuting the hypothesis. And then you're going, What's going on here? Why did that not win? What, what, why did it lose? Why did it, why did it have this impact on these metrics? And of course, you never know. But you come up with another theory. You go, okay. So based on what I'm seeing in the metrics here, perhaps this doesn't make sense at all. I don't think the world works like this. But based on what I'm seeing, perhaps we should do this crazy sounding thing and you test that and it works, and it's it's not something that you would have thought of if you'd not had a negative test. and that's the process man that's that's what is so um stimulating about this.
1: Yeah, I think that uh that you mentioned humbleness. I think that's uh a big theme to carry out as you move into experimentation. We are uh, maybe more banter in our team, but you know as someone pre- presents a win everyone goes stay humble uh and it's just like uh just to remind ourselves and i think as you said the the immediate response of the negative result is always negative and then you need to remind yourself that this is actually well actually not even reminding yourselves but naturally it becomes more exciting because there's exploration to be done now and that's when the you had a blank canvas again and you go, what's going on? Why, why is it wrong? And, and you, if, know, you become the investigator.
0: If you've constructed your hypothesis properly, which often doesn't happen, then you've learned something, you know, you've got, you've got an insight that you can actually work on. Um, yeah, it, it, you, we are wrong about more or less everything. You know, there's this jargon flying about mental models and I hate using that jargon because it has become jargon and it's become devalued as a result of the way people talk about mental models. But if you take it just a step further, experimentation and how anyone has run a few A-B tests will know that you're wrong more often than you're right in terms of, you know, the way that you predict the outcome of changes. But it's true more fundamentally than that. The way that we understand the world, again, because our brains are so... Uh, incapable of dealing with all this information, whether it's your work, your family, the, the community in which you work, uh, any system really, you dumb down to a, a, an image of how the world works. Now, you and I will talk about exactly the same thing and we'll have a different image. I see it through my lens, you see it through yours. It's more or less the same, but it's, you know we see it differently. And the the... the Typically, the way we understand that things work, A, is not really the right way, there are other ways as well, and also it's up for challenge. Why should it work like that? And that brings us right back to AI. Because the way the world works at the moment, and take e for example, so the way e-commerce works is you go onto Google, you search for something, you find an ad, or maybe on a, an organic listing, you click on it, you land on a PDP, Uh, you look at the image top left, you you look at the copy. If you decide to buy it, you click on add to cart, then you go through. And it's actually a a long process that doesn't make sense. I mean, that's back to the question earlier on. Should it work this way? How should it work? It shouldn't work that way. It's a pain in the ass. That's not how it should work. But that's our mental model. It's become our collective mental model of how Ecom works. It's not gonna work like that in 10 years from now. Somebody will challenge that mental model And it will probably be forced by AI, you know, sooner than we think. And it it will work in the way that it's meant to work. We're wrong about that. We're wrong about just about everything.
1: Yeah, I won't get too much into the the social selling uh, environment. But it's, uh, as much as I'm a massive fan of of e commerce, uh, in a traditional sense, um, purely because I've been a Shopify supporter since the beginning and <laughs> um, very proud of what Toby's done. But uh, I, I think the social selling direction is the, a pivotal moment of like just something as simple as Instagram shopping and, and yeah. where that's leading to and how brands are making so much more cash through their organic sales. And I think there's something. That's just going to evolve without us knowing on the sideline and then it's going to catch up past us and and we're going to see this new environment but yeah thanks so much for for your time and i i think there's um i'm gonna digest this in my own summary of of uh, you know big moments on uh, refining prompts the opportunities of this playground that we have as ai um and I think the practical implementations are, are endless. And I think the exciting part is that these implementations are going to evolve in the next couple of months massively. Um, and we just need to keep playing around, keep testing, keep our fear aside and, and make sure that we're looking at the rustling bushes and not the lions running towards us. And I think that's, that's something that's going to be powerful for us.